Hallo, hier ist Ella aus Deutschland. Ihr lauscht der Stimme der Demokratie, verbreitet auf der ganzen Welt von Two Corps in Politics. Enjoy! Welcome back to another episode of Two Broads Talking Politics. As usual, I am one of your co-hosts, Sophie, and I'm here with your other co-host, Kelly. Hey, Kelly. Hello. And tonight we are joined by another Kelly, Kelly Smith, who is running for Florida House of Representatives from District 38. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. Good to be with you. We're happy to have you with us. Can you just sort of start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and sort of how you came to be running for the Florida House? Yeah, I live in Wesley Chapel, Florida, which is a suburb area just north of Tampa. I'm married to my husband, Patrick, and we have three children that we adopted through foster care as toddlers, and they are now 13, 14, and 15. So uh, clearly we didn't think that part through <laughs> when, we, <laughs> when we knew we'd get to the teenage years. I have worked in land use and planning and transportation pretty much my whole career. I started as the FEMA coordinator for the city of Naples in Collier County and then became the zoning administrator for the city of Marco Island. Uh, it was pretty interesting because the city had just incorporated, so there was a lot of exciting stuff going on at the time. And I will admit that I didn't even know what a zoning administrator was. So I was totally fascinated by all of it and had a really, really great boss and mentor and wish that I had known about land use and planning when I was going to college. It's something I definitely would have studied. I took a short break to go work for my dad. He had an embroidery franchise and quickly realized that the family business was really not my cup of tea. <laughs> So we were in Naples at the time and had the opportunity to move to uh, the Tampa area and decided to go for it. And I've been with the transportation engineering firm that I work for now. I've been with them since we moved here 10 years ago. Primarily, I've been doing operations, so financial analysis and project management assistance and contract stuff. But I'm excited to starting to get back into the planning side of things now. And the way I found myself running for the Florida House seat is I ran for county commissioner in the last election cycle. And uh, unfortunately, I did not win, but I do live in a very Republican area. Although I would say that as I meet people and I talk with people, it's really a much more progressive area. It's just that people happen to be registered Republicans because that's just how it's always been. The representative who uh, won the election, obviously I didn't run in this election last time, but Representative Danny Burgess, who is a really fantastic public servant, he is actually one of the really good ones, he was named to be the head of the Florida Department of Veterans Affairs, and so special election opened up, and I <laughs> happened to live in the correct district, and that's kind of how I ended up running for it. So it looks like Daniel Burgess has been unopposed or unopposed by Democrats anyway, for 
basically like the whole time he's been in office and uh, that there were Republicans before that. So what do you see as your path to victory in a race like this? So being a special election, it really does provide the Democrats with a really solid opportunity to flip the seat. Historically, Democrats do very well in special elections. And I have an advantage of having the name recognition from the last campaign and providing our people with an opportunity to, to vote for me again in a different seat. And hopefully this time uh, we can flip it. The overall thing that we're really working on is making sure that people know that there is a special election because that's really not something most people have on their radar. And then letting them know that in this election specifically, it's important to sign up for vote by mail because, let's face it, it's hard enough to get people excited to go to vote on election day, but on a random Tuesday in the middle of June, people aren't going to want to go vote literally for one thing. So we're really trying to encourage people to sign up for vote by mail so that they you know, can take the opportunity to be part of this election as easily as they can. So there's a a primary first, but you're unopposed in the primary. Is that right? That's right. Yes. So what are some of the issues that people are talking to you about as you're campaigning around the district? What are some things that are really important to people in Pasco County? Education is definitely a top issue, especially with the, the new governors changing the rhetoric on education. You know, the Republican Party in Florida especially is really big on a voucher system and um, getting people to be able to go to to private school, you know, diverting those funds. And last week, the governor said something along the lines of, well, if we send public money to private schools, then they become public schools. And therefore, we should just continue to to expand our voucher program. (laughs) Which, yeah, yeah. It's it's not how it works. So, you know, that's that's a big issue. We've got a lot of unfunded mandates that, you know, have really the school districts have taken a hit on those, uh, especially with um, since Parkland and the, the, the safety measures that are now required. One of the other things that I quite honestly didn't realize until probably about six months ago is that local school boards don't actually get to set their own tax rate. It's pretty much down from the state legislature. There's some guidelines about what they can do, but ultimately it's pretty much prescribed by the state legislature. So that's an area where I think there is a a real need to change that process because local school boards should be able to set their own property tax rate and run their budget the way they need to within their communities. And then I would also say that tied together, um, development and the environment are a big issue, especially in Pasco County. We are growing like gangbusters here and have been, you know, before the recession and then it, you know, it obviously slowed down for a while. But since the recession, um, over the last, I would say probably five years, uh, our growth has really been at a very, very fast pace. And we don't have some of the oversight legislation that was 
in existence before 2011 um, that the former governor, Rick Scott, decided to do away with when he took office. So there's a lot of concern about whether or not we're really protecting our water resources and providing for transportation services and, you know, the other, you know, even school growth that needs to happen along with the population growth. And then lastly, I would say that the, the big issue is economic opportunity. We live in a county where we're pretty much the standard poverty rate, you know, comparably to the national poverty rate in the district where the house this house district is, the poverty rate is anywhere from seven percent, which is obviously lower, but goes any goes up to forty one percent and is probably about a twenty five percent average. And we have a lot of people who are living above the poverty level but still can't afford their basic housing, transportation, health care, child care, um, and food and food needs. So we need to be sure that we're really looking at opportunities for wage growth. And that's not something that's being prioritized right now. So I know that guns and gun safety has been a, a big hot button issue in Florida and has been something that the state legislature there has not been acting on, you know, despite like the kids from Parkland going and, and lobbying for things. What are you hearing from people as you're talking to people in the district? Are Is gun safety something that they're worried about? You know, what what does that look like? It's, it's honestly not really a topic that has come up very often. I do know that people are supportive of universal background checks and, and the you know, the common sense background checks. The bigger issue in Florida right now, and especially in this area, really comes down to the question of should we be arming teachers or not? And the overwhelming majority of people that I speak with do not agree that we need to have more weapons in our schools. Uh, I have yet to meet anyone who thinks that giving, allowing a teacher to bring their gun to school is a good idea. And I talk to far more people who should that actually go through. And there's, there's another proposal to bring that forward this year, like they did last year. There are a lot of parents who have said, if, if that becomes fact, and there are teachers with weapons, you know, with guns in school, I'll have to look at other educational opportunities for my child. So you have some fun facts posted on your website. Uh, and <laughs> one of my favorites is that you talk about Leslie Nope. I, I kind of wonder how many people uh, the fictional character of Leslie Nope has inspired to run for office. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Certainly one of the things I think about if I think about running for office. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> but you also talk about your pets. Can you talk a little bit about your, your pets and uh, their importance to you? Sure, absolutely. So we have three cats right now. Um, we have Nittany, who is my old man, and, and I think he just turned 18, so he's really up there. We have Frixie, who was a stray, was at my parents' house, and eventually made his way to our house because my daughter was three at the time, and she was really attached. But we also had this little situation where my mom didn't want the cat to come to our house, but my dad really wanted my daughter to have the cat. So he <laughs> he told the story that, yes, I went, to, I took the cat to the pound 
And we didn't think through the fact that at some point my three-year-old daughter would blab. And so my mom <laughs> found out that the cat didn't stay at the pound. And then we have Walt, who was a stray, who found us. And then we have the dog. And I think, unfortunately, I think I need to update my website because we only have one dog now. Um, we have Phoebe, who uh, came to us second after Penny. But Phoebe and Penny couldn't quite get along with each other. Mm. So we did, we did recently find a fabulous new home for Penny. And um, she is extremely happy. And 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 Phoebe is she is she's my therapy dog uh, unofficially and I call her my toddler with fur because she really is you know as soon as you're on the phone she wants your attention or you know just any of that silliness so you've got a pretty full house with teenagers (laughs) and a lot of pets yes and last year in the campaign we did a lot of postcards and I'm sure that's part of of the enjoyment I get with Phoebe is that she was on the postcard that went out to people. And Phoebe, I'm happy to say, made this year's postcard as well. So um, <laughs> we did we did change up the design a little bit. We got some feedback from some voters, uh, but Phoebe, of course, has has made this year's cut. We talk to a lot of moms on the podcast, but they tend to either have very, very young children or children who are already grown. So what is it like to campaign with three teenagers and what do they think about you running for office? My kids are actually thrilled that I'm running again because that means I'm not home as often and <laughs> some of the some of the expectations are a little bit more lax when dad is in charge. Um, <laughs> So they're actually excited, but in all in all fairness, they do support me a lot, and I don't think they quite think about what what it will mean when I win. But they're very supportive as long as I don't make them go knock doors too often. <laughs> so speaking of not really understanding, you know, what it would be like when you win. So the the Florida legislature is this a, a considered a part time position, part year position? What does that look like? So the session meets for 60 days a year. Um, They're actually getting ready to start this year on Tuesday or on March 5th coming up. In even years, they meet January through March. And in odd years, it's March through May. So for those 60 days, I would have to go move to Tallahassee Um, throughout the year. But mostly just the couple months leading up to the session, there are committee weeks so I would have to go to Tallahassee for a couple days at a time. And then obviously all year long, I would, you know, be meeting with constituents and, and working to on future legislation and things like that. Um, but it's really considered more of a part-time position, which is kind of interesting for me to think about it that way, because I would think you'd want your legislators to be more accessible than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something we've noticed talking to people around the country. There are some states, I mean, there are some states where it's completely volunteer, they don't even get paid. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, and then there are states all the way up to Pennsylvania has, you know, full time, very well compensated. And it it's just sort of all over the board. And uh, it does seem I agree, I think that legislators should be a full time position, you know, compensated as such, uh, but that doesn't seem to be a very common thing. Yeah, which is unfortunate because 
I think a lot of very qualified people would run for office if they didn't have to look at how that impacts their family or their finances. I know for me, last election cycle, I had considered running for the seat instead of running for county commission, but the county commission is very well compensated and almost double what the the house rep position is compensated. And when you throw in the two months that you're going to be, you know, completely away from your family and, and your job, because I do have a job that I'll have to take a leave of absence from for session. Um, that means, you, you know, not everybody has that level of flexibility. And I think that's unfortunate. So if our listeners would like to help out your campaign, how can they do that? So they can go to my website, which is www.kellyforpasco.com. And um, there are lots of ways they can help out. We obviously can take donations through the website. So that is always appreciated. Because this is a special election, we have a really big emphasis on phone banking so that we can make sure we try to, to speak with every voter in the district. And phone banking can be done from anywhere, which is the beauty of that. So um, there is also a link on the website to get the information to help us with the phone banking. All right. Excellent. Is there anything else that you want to make sure we talk about? I would just like to say, especially for anybody who's listening, who's in Florida House District 38, this is a really good opportunity to flip this seat and to build the democratic momentum in Pasco County. And I think that getting the word out that there is an election is really critical to making sure that that we're all successful. Okay, great. We'll put your information up on our website so people can find you. I think, uh, you know, we we saw in 2018 that uh, even though there was a blue wave, it didn't totally hit Florida quite as much as we would have liked. So uh, right. nope. it, it would be really great to sort of keep going and, and keep pushing and, and getting more Democrats elected across Florida. Yes, it would. And, and here in Pasco County, it would. I think it would really be the momentum that we need to be successful in 2020. All right. Well, Kelly, with the great name, <laughs> we wish you all the best of luck and, and we'll keep uh, trying to push your message out on social media as well. And uh, thank, thank you, you for running and, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun. All right. And uh, everybody should always vote for the person named Kelly on the ballot, unless they're Republican, <laughs> in which case you definitely shouldn't. <laughs> I'm on today with Jimmy Peluso, who is running for the Jacksonville City Council in District 14. Hi, Jimmy. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. So could we start with just some background? Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and why you decided to run for City Council. Sure. Well, my name is Jimmy Peluso, and I actually I grew up here in Jacksonville. I moved here, you know, when I was 10 years old. So, so it, I've done almost all of my my schooling here in Jacks. And and growing up, you know, I kind of felt like Jacksonville felt very different than other cities. It felt very disconnected from each other. Uh, the different neighborhoods kind of had a very different feel. And, and I remember my parents telling me like, "You don't drive across the bridges." 
Um, you don't go to the other side of Jacksonville. And, and, and so I was basically, you know, kind of cut off from what it felt like uh, were the other parts of Jacksonville. And so I really felt like there was no sense of community, no real sense of identity. And so, you know, I, I, I left Jacks and I went to go uh, to college at George Washington University, D.C. And then immediately thereafter, I joined the U.S. Navy, uh, where I served as a naval officer for six years, deployed three times um, and lived in three different cities. I lived in San Diego. I lived in Norfolk, Virginia, and then I lived in Philadelphia for my last uh, my last duty station, uh, and that's where I actually received my master's degree from Penn in public administration. But so living in those other cities, I kind of felt like, wow, these other these other guys figured it out, you know. And, and I mean, they all had similarities to Jacksonville and, and a few things, you know, that were a little dissimilar. But but at the end of the day, every city should sort of operate in a similar fashion. All of them should want to grow in the right way. And to me, I felt like one of the issues that Jacksonville had going for it is that we were growing outward too much. And so, so when I when I decided to run for office, that was one of the big issues for me is that we we don't look to to our downtown as you know our city center. We don't look at our older neighborhoods the way that some of these other cities do. And instead, you know, we really sort of gravitate towards building out these new suburbs and these new developments. Um, that are much further away from where our urban core is. And in doing that, it just kind of feels like, you know, we're, we're continuing that trend of, of separating ourselves from each other and sort of diluting our sense of being a city. And so I really wanted to change that. I really wanted to come to Jacksonville um, and get us back on track. I feel like any time that I ever ask questions like, hey, guys, you know, do you think Jacksonville should have a better transportation system? Or do you really think we should start developing our downtown? Or don't you think we should go back in these older neighborhoods that we've kind of neglected and promised we helped years ago? And almost everyone I speak to says, yeah, we absolutely should do those things. And then they would throw in more stuff at me. We should really sort of, you know, uh, fix some of our older infrastructure problems. We should try to create a more pedestrian and bike-friendly community. And as I kind of heard those things, uh, it really started getting the wheels turning, and I decided I would run for office uh, to try and bring the changes that I've been waiting to see in Jacksonville and, and finally get an advocate up in City Hall who's going to do it. I feel like we've got a lot of people up there who are, you know, part of that good old boy network. feels like Boss Hog, you know. It feels like there's there's these, these couple of families or these couple of groups, and, and they're the ones who make all the big decisions, and it's why we've grown in such a wonky way. Um, and why we had allowed ourselves to kind of kind of develop in a, in, a, in a different sort of vibe than most cities do. And I really want to change that. I really think that we can. I think there's an appetite for it. Um, and I'm ready to do it. So what does the city council look like in Jacksonville? Like how big is it? Are you're running in the 14th district. How many districts are mm-hmm. there? And, and how does the city council kind of operate in relationship with the mayor? Well, so Jacksonville's again super wonky. Um, we uh, we have 19, 19 city council members, which is quite large. I mean, like if you go to you know New York City, it's 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 a very different vibe. But down here in Florida, to have nineteen council members on one legislative body is is huge. Most county commissions only have five. Most city councils might have between five to seven. Um, and so what Jacksonville did back in nineteen sixty eight was consolidate our city government and our county government. And so before, you know, the city of Jacksonville was a lot smaller because right now Jacksonville, as I understand it, is the largest city in the continental uh, United States, you know, in terms of size, area and size. And it's because in 68, we decided to, you know, merge the two of them together and make the entire county the whole city limits of Jacksonville. 
So in doing that, we basically got rid of the county commission. So out of the 67 counties in Florida, uh, we are one of, I think, two that has merged their city and their state into one entity. And so part of the deal that was made uh, in order to give sort of more of these neighborhoods and more of these groups, especially in Jacksonville, which was facing, you know, the the heyday of the civil rights movement, uh, we were facing a lot of communities that were saying, all right, we'll, we'll sign on to consolidating this government, but we want to make sure that we have a seat at the table. We want to make sure that we have African-Americans who are serving on council. Um, and so we, we brought in the amount, the number to make sure that those communities were definitely going to get representation on our city council. Cause before then it was very rare to see African-Americans in leadership at Jacksonville. And if you look back into the history of Jacksonville, especially like the early 20th century, Jacksonville was a majority African-American city. And so there had been a long history of basically, you know, whites who were sort of running the show in Jacksonville and Duval County, despite being in the minority or despite being, you know, kind of a 50-50 split. So this was a way to make sure that we gave representation to everyone. But as the years went on, demographics shifted um, and, and the Democrats kind of lost favor here in Jacksonville. Now we've seen a very different makeup on our city council. And so we've got 19 members um, and they don't always get along, uh, but we also have a strong mayor. And the strong mayor is meant to be basically an independent executive. So he's elected all by himself. And the races now for mayor have gotten into the millions upon millions of dollars. I mean, like they're getting pretty expensive. I think we had the most expensive race, uh, expensive mayor's race back in 2015 in Florida history. And, uh, and that trend is continuing. We are we are throwing a ton of money at that race. And so it's become highly politicized. And so our mayor now um, is a pretty polarizing figure. He's done some things that have really kind of made it, you know, made Jacksonville feel less like we did in the past, where it felt like things were a little less partisan here than in other big cities. And now we're really getting away from that. Now it feels like it's very partisan. And if you're not in his inner circle or with his crew, then you're not going to get what you need done. And it's, it's, it's pretty disappointing to see in our leadership. But so, you know, we've, we've, we've got a strong mayor. We've got 19 council members. And I mean, it's, it's probably not going to change for a while. Um, but we do have redistricting coming after the 2020 census. So whoever gets elected to this current city council is going to have the ability to kind of cut some of those lines to hopefully make some of the races more competitive. And maybe we could see actually a more you know, proper representation of Democrats and Republicans here in Jacks, uh, as well as making sure we have um, a good representation of different minority groups here in Jacks on city council. So when I think about Jacksonville, I tend to think about the ocean, but I noticed that both on your website and in your video, you talk about the river. Certainly. Yep. Yep. So what, what is, this is St. John's River. What, what is the relationship between the river and this district that you're running in? Well, there, there's a few key neighborhoods in my district, and one of those neighborhoods is Riverside. And so it, it has a lot of the historical neighborhoods. You know, my entire district does. We've got Riverside, we have Avondale, we have Murray Hill, we have Ortega. And I mean, some of these homes have been around for upwards of 100 years. Um, so these are sort of the, the, the original suburbs for the city of Jacksonville. And, and the river was the key to making Jacksonville a viable and very very large economically and industrial-wise uh, part of Florida. And so, I mean, but way back when, 
there were only a few like real cities here in Florida. I mean, it was pretty much Jacksonville, Tallahassee, and Pensacola for the longest time. So we've always had like a major presence here in Florida. And, and so the river was kind of the key to all that. And absolutely, when we tell people or when I tell people about why they should move to Jacksonville and some of the great things we have here, I always showcase the fact that we have beaches. Because we've got some beautiful beaches, but, you know, I, I personally won't be representing any of them. But I do think that they're a major asset uh, for the city of Jax. But, I mean, our St. John's River is unfortunately oftentimes in danger of, of being, you know, overpolluted or neglected. And, and it's a huge river that extends from the Orlando area northward towards Jacksonville. And, and it touches a little bit of Fernandina even. Um, so it really spends the length of about 18 different counties here in the state of Florida. It's massive. It's our largest river, um, and it's, it's, very, it's very well regarded. Almost anyone who, who lives on the river, their property values are very high. Um, it's a beautiful piece of you know, Florida history that we should all cherish and want to make sure that it's going to stick around for generations to come. And we need to make sure that we are you know, removing the septic systems that are off the river, that we are reducing the amount of fertilizers and stormwater runoff that can flow into the river. And so it's more than just a Jacksonville problem. Uh, it's a problem that all 18 counties that touch the river need to, you know, come together on and figure out ways to, to help solve that problem. And we do have state, you know, state actors, state agencies that can help out as well. I used to work for one. It was called the St. John's River Water Management District. So they kind of help set some policy as well to find ways to help the river. But I mean, it's, it's near and dear to my heart. It's near and dear to the hearts of, I think, a lot of Jacksonville residents. Uh, and, and we've actually recently had a bit of a fight over dredging uh, because people have been talking about dredging the river from 40 feet to 47. And so that's also kind of been a, a decent hot potato, if you will, uh, down here in Jax. I mean, some, some people in the business community really, really want to see it move forward. Other people in the environmental community are saying it's going to be a detriment to the health of the river in addition to creating a giant risk to the homeowners who live right on the river many of which were flooded out during Hurricane Matthew and Irma. And so that's kind of been a discussion point as well that a lot of people will sort of talk about throughout the city council and even mayoral elections. But frankly, you know, we could we could sort of have our cake and eat it too. We just need to make sure that we provide proper mitigation if we ever were to fully, you know, move forward on dredging the river. Because right now it seems like the Army Corps of Engineers is is – you know, dead set on doing it. And we've got federal leadership that's really kind of pushing us to do it. So with it kind of getting outside the bounds of what the county and the state are even allowed to do to stop it, we should be calling for true mitigation to make sure that we are uh, protecting wetlands, um, protecting uh, endangered species, protecting the, the health of the river and making sure that homes are going to be protected for the next, you know, 50 to 100 years. And so we're going to we're going to need leadership from city council to do that so there's a lot of things involving the river and, and yes we got beaches i love our beaches but you know the river's where it's at i must say <laughs> so you are a navy veteran and of course uh naval facilities make up a huge uh, part of jacksonville it's one of the major economic drivers and you talk a lot about veterans on your website's first issue you list. Can you talk about there must be a really large veteran community within Jacksonville and what you would like to see the city doing uh, to be more helpful to veterans? And you're, and you're right to say that it's the first issue because I, I made it the first issue. I wanted to make sure that it was the first thing people saw um, for a couple of reasons. You know, as of that, uh, I think that 
that everyone loves to say, you know, how much they support veterans and want to help veterans. And, and I believe that. I genuinely believe it. Everyone does want to help and support veterans uh, and thank them for their service. Um, and, and I think a lot of cities and a lot of municipalities and a lot of businesses want to do that. But many of them don't know how. And so um, it's, it's one of the reasons why we continue to see uh, veteran suicides, veteran depression, veteran homelessness. And so one of the things that I want to see us do here in Jacksonville to make sure that we can not only reduce those things, but also truly show that this city is a pro-veteran city, because as I understand it, we do have, I think, the second largest veteran population uh, in Florida. Uh, the first one, I think, being right outside of McDill Air Force Base down in the Tampa area. And so with two major naval installations, one of which being in my district, and with my district having a ton of veterans, I want to make it so that a private business, and we've got many here in Jacksonville, let's say Johnson & Johnson or CSX or something like that, if they want to say that they are pro-veteran, I want to create a program, a citywide program, that says, all right, you want to be pro-veteran, that's great, but um, we need to make sure that you actually read the resume of the veterans applying for jobs at your place and that you will guarantee a over-the-phone or in-face interview. And the reason I say this is because I applied for a job at, at a, a nonprofit that, you know, uh, it's very well known. I'm not going to name it, but, um, but it's a very pro-veteran nonprofit. And I applied for a job there. Uh, and I have a master's degree, and I had six years of, of active-duty experience. And as an officer, you know, you're in leadership. So effectively, you know, I'm kind of middle management. So I had middle management experience, a master's degree, and, and obviously, you know, my time in service. And so I thought for sure that I would get at least a call back from this position. And, and this was, it wasn't just one place. I, I applied to multiple places, and this continued to happen. And what, what appeared to be the issue is that my resume didn't reflect exactly what they were looking for. Um, in many cases, I didn't have the prerequisite experience. And so if it asks or calls for one or two years of experience in a related field, it's very difficult to prove you have that, especially if they won't speak to you. So I got my uh, my resume is denied multiple times, and I use software to try and you know gain the system and have it say, oh, you know, yes, you did have that experience. You know, I I, I try to do some of the tricks of the trade, and, and these were in some cases entry level positions or or positions that were you know not you know something that I actually thought that I was almost overqualified for, and so to to get denied and be told no, you don't have the experience or no, you know, your resume didn't have enough to, to warrant an interview. It was really just, you know, it, it makes you feel you know, distraught and upset. And, and I'm, I'm fortunate that I, that I have family in the area and I had a really good um, network to sort of, you know, take my time to find a good position. And I was fortunate enough to do so about three or four months after I moved back. But for those who don't have that, for those who have, you know, uh, a spouse and two kids, and they go from their military service and need to find a job, it's very difficult for someone to do it, especially if they continue to get denied to, to, to get a job. And so I think the issue is that these HR departments just don't know how to read a resume. And so we really need to make sure that, that for those companies that want to be quote unquote pro-veteran, um, the city can then, you know, have them come in, make the promises that I mentioned, you know, that, that we will actually physically read the resume, assuming they have a a honorable discharge and that we will actually call them or do a face-to-face -face interview. So if anything else, then they can at least just sort of help that veteran figure out how interview, you know, the interview process works um, and, and sort of help them, you know, figure out what skills they really do have to try and market themselves better. And I think that would be a huge boost to help make sure that, that veterans are getting the jobs they need here in Jacksonville. I think we'll start seeing veterans get, get more, um, you know, jobs that are a little bit, 
you know, less, less uh, minimum wage or less um, entry level. Uh, I think that, that that could really sort of be a consequence of this or a result of this, I should say. And, and again, any business that, that opts into this program and takes the training from the city, we could put their name front and center on, you know, the, the city website. And whenever the mayor or whenever city council, you know, does some sort of, you know, whether it's the president of city council or whatever, does some sort of press junket, they always sort of bring up the pro-veteran businesses here in Jacksonville, things like that. So ways to really sort of entice businesses to do it. Um, and then we could tell veterans going from their active duty service to their to, to becoming civilian, we can let them know what these businesses are. Again, this is, I, I believe it's going to be free to do, you know, it should be of no cost to the city. Uh, it should be a very simple, you know, policy change for, for, I think, a lot of these HR departments to make. Uh, and I think it would be something that would really be a huge benefit to the families of these veterans. And it's something that I'm very passionate about. It's something that I think could really be, be a quick, easy fix. That's not going to, you know, break anyone's bank and it could be something that everyone on city council gets behind because every district has veterans um although myself and probably the beaches has some of the most so it's, it's it's something that i think can actually get done and that's what i'm that's what i'm really excited to see it'll be the first bill that i try to pass in city hall if our listeners whether they're in the area or outside the area would like to help out with your campaign how can they do that they could go to my uh, my Facebook page, or they can go to my actual website, jimmyforjacks.com. Uh, if you go to Jimmy for Jacks, um, you'll be able to send me an email. I'm very quick to respond to emails. Uh, we do canvassing, a big canvas, every Saturday. Uh, and we do phone banks on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And if you can't do any of those, but you still want to knock on doors or make calls, we will always accommodate. Um, I, I've worked on campaigns in the past. Um, you know, I kind of understand how field and this ground game works and, and how to win these races. And I will never turn anyone away who wants to support this campaign in any way, shape or form. Uh, and I would love to have anyone, you know, come out and if you can only show up for one hour and make calls, that's perfectly fine. We could have to do it from the house or, or you can come to, to, to our HQ and, and make calls there. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that we talk about? I think that, that for this race, it's important for, for, I think, people to hear that, that we have uh, four candidates, all four of which are excellent people um, and, and, you know, deserve to, to, you know, be in government in some capacity. But I do think that, um, that I'm the kind of candidate that I really think appeals to the entire district. Uh, we have a lot of blue-collar areas. We have the military base. And then we have sort of the young hip areas that are really starting to drive the progressive engine in Jacksonville. And I really think that I appeal to and sort of match the qualities of all the parts of our district. And so I really want to not only represent my district because I want to re represent the district, but because, you know, I really feel like I embody sort of what makes District 14 so great. And I feel like I can go into all these different neighborhoods and really speak to folks. Um, and I think I'm doing it. And, and I know I'm doing it because I've already gotten a few uh, attack mailers uh, sent out against me, calling me, you know, calling me some pretty vicious names, trying to scare off some voters who it's very difficult for a Democrat to appeal to. I think I'm I think I'm bringing voters into the coalition uh, that are veterans and many of which are Republican. And so I'm really appealing to not only Democrats, but moderate Republicans and independents. And I really think that's scaring one of my opponents um, you know, somebody who's extremely well-funded, and I believe that, uh, that you know, they are, they're coming after me pretty hard. 
And it's really, it's really disturbing to see um, because it's not something that we should be seeing here in Jacksonville. Um, we should be seeing a more unifying, less partisan Jacksonville because everything that we should want to do, especially when it comes to fixing our infrastructure, you know, making sure potholes are, you know, cleaned up and making sure that we, we go into our parks and actually maintain them accordingly. Those are not partisan things, you know, so we shouldn't be seeing these attacks, but, but it's just interesting to see that, that as I knock on more and more doors and we've knocked on over 12,000 doors, spoken with 15,000 people, as we talk to more people and I see a lot of folks say, I'm definitely getting behind you. I'm now seeing these attacks come, and it's only it's only making me want to um, work even harder for everyone's vote and prove all the naysayers wrong and prove the folks who are trying to go after me wrong, um, who are you know clearly trying to to drag my name in the mud, and, uh, and and I just won't let them do it. But you know that's something that you know I want to make sure people are aware of, that this is a real race that is truly you know where we're seeing. We're seeing the good and the bad come from this thing. We're seeing some really cool policy discussions coming out. We're seeing some great candidate forums and debates. We're seeing some some great ideological differences that really sort of show people where we stand. But then we're also seeing, you know, this ugly stuff. We are seeing, you know, things that are that that should not be seen at the city level. And and I can tell you that I, I don't condone it. Uh, and and I and I want to make sure that we have a candidate who's going to actually represent this district, who unifies people and not tries to divide them with junk like this. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much both for running for office and uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. As people are listening to this, it will be Monday, March 4th, and the election will be in just a little over two weeks. Uh, So thank you. And we will put information uh, about your website and your Facebook page up on our website as well so people can, can find you. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for letting me do this. I love hearing that it's going to be on the 4th because that is the first day of early voting uh, for those who are living in the city, even if they're not in the district. From the 4th through the 17th, you can go to one of many different libraries in Jack's and early vote. And it's, it's a great way to get your vote in there and not have to stand in line for an hour and a half. <laughs> thank you so much for letting me do this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. Our theme song is called Are You Listening? off of the album Elephant Shaped Trees by the band Immunuri, and we're using it with permission of the band. Our logo and other original artwork is by Matthew Wethlin and was created for use by this podcast.